welcome to everyone. My name is Kusila Devi, and I'm here with my friends from the team at the Buddhist Centre Online, Sadai Sihi, who will give you a wave. Hello, everybody. And Chandra Dasa. And also, it's very fortunate that we have Ratna Vandana joining us here, which is wonderful. So I'm sure that many of you might be following the home retreat on the Brahma Viharas this week, Being Divine Online Home Retreat. So it's a real pleasure to have Ratna Vandana here with us in person. So big welcome. And I will hand over to Sadaya Sihi, who's going to introduce Ratna Vandana a bit more fully. Thanks very much, Kusla Devi. Yeah, so just a big welcome to everybody who's here. I'm aware that some people probably might be joining in as part of their Sangha, having a Sangha event. I know there's probably some people here from the Cambridge Sangha who are taking part in a home retreat on this particular topic. And I'm sure there's probably other people joining in from different Sanghas, but from wherever you're coming from, whether it's doing it yourself or whether you're joining in with others, very big welcome. So what we're going to be exploring in the next hour is just these practices of the Brahma Viharas. If you like, these practices are just practices that are aimed at helping us develop love, joy, compassion, equanimity. Yeah, so I'm really, really pleased that we're going to be joined by Ratna Vandana. And I'm sure to some of you, Ratna Vandana is going to need no introduction. I know she's led very many retreats on the subject of the Brahma Viharas over the years. And in fact, it's been one of her main practices for about 40 years, more than 40 years, I believe. And in just in one of those delightful moments of synchronicity, I discovered during the week that at this very moment, this very week, she was due to be leading a retreat on the Brahma Viharas in Taraloka. And obviously that got cancelled as a result of the coronavirus. So it's just delightful that we're able to run this particular home retreat on this subject at this time, because it just feels good that even though that retreat couldn't happen, it sort of evolved into this online retreat. And you might be interested that Mitra City, who was another person who would have been leading that retreat, has been very kindly blogging, sharing some videos on her thoughts on the Grand Viharas as well, which you can find in the community toolkit as well afterwards. So I'm really delighted, as I said, that Ratna Vandana is joining us and I'm looking forward to what she has to say. We've had a few conversations with her in the run up to this and it's been really fascinating, really interesting, just hearing a little bit more about her connection with these practices. But first, before we launch in into hearing a bit more about the Brahma Viharas in depth, I just thought it'd be nice to give people a bit of context and a bit of background to Ratna Vandana herself. So Ratna Vanda, I was just wondering if you could maybe tell us where you are at the moment, what quarter of the earth you're on, and what's your current lockdown situation look like, just so people have a sense of that. Right. Well, hello, everybody. It's lovely to see so many well, see so many people that I know and don't know. It's great to be here. I'm in mid-Wales, and right at this moment, it's raining. There's the sound of rain, and we haven't had this for so long that it's very, very welcome at the moment. And I can feel the earth just kind of opening up and oh, just so grateful to receive its nourishment. So that's really lovely. Everything is looking very, very beautiful in my garden. Lots of spring flowers, lots and lots of beauty. I'm surrounded by lambs. The farmer at the top of the hill, who's my landlord, he breeds sheep, so lambs abound. The hills are alive to the sound of buying, which is, <laughs> it's actually, it's very delightful. But there's also, of course, you know, what's happening in the world. And although in some ways it sort of feels as though everything here is just life as usual, it isn't, you know, it just very much isn't. It's kind of, it's in the atmosphere somehow, you know, I only have to close my eyes and I don't know, it's just all there, the suffering world as it is at the moment. So 
yeah, that's a little snapshot. Yeah, thanks for that. And we'll probably get into that a little bit more about just in relation to that idea of suffering and I suppose even what the Brahma Viharas can offer. But yeah, it's really good to hear where you are and it sounds almost idyllic hearing about the, the sheep making all those lovely sounds nearby. I'm particularly interested as well just in hearing a little bit more about your connection with these practices and, and even just going back a bit, what brought you along to meditation? What brought you along to True Ratna, our community, back in the day, so to speak? And maybe if you could just share a little bit about what your first experience of meditation and the Brahma Viharas looked like, particularly for those, some of us might have a lot more experience with these practices, but some people might be, you know, taking this up for the first time. It'd be nice just to hear a little bit about that. Mm, right, well, <laughs> takes me back. At the time uh, I first came to meditation, my life was in transition. I had left London, where I'd been living for the previous 14 years, and my career in the music business, and had gone down to Cornwall with a friend in search of ourselves, really. I'd certainly had quite a lot of experience in terms of altering my states of consciousness through other means. And I'd read this book about ways to change your state of consciousness without the aid of drugs. And I was very interested in that. So I was particularly interested in meditation. And at that time, I mean, this is, I'm talking about 1973, meditation was not heard of much at all in the UK. So I was trying to learn to meditate from a book, Ram Das, Be Here Now. I don't know if anybody's familiar with it, a book that I loved at the time. It was uh, yeah, wonderful inspiration. But trying to meditate from a book, I wasn't finding very easy. But anyway, we were looking for a yoga class. And as a result of looking for a yoga class, my friend and I, now down in Cornwall, having been there just for three months, I think it was, through looking for the yoga class, we heard that somebody was going to be teaching the yoga society to meditate. This was on the Friday or even on the Saturday, and it was going to be happening on the Sunday and discovered that it was going to actually be happening at a house just down the lane from where we were living. I couldn't believe my luck that there was going to be something. I was told that the person who was going to be teaching it was a Buddhist, but it was fine. You didn't have to be a Buddhist. You could just learn the meditation. I didn't know anything about Buddhism at all, but very happily, I mean, I did ask if it was okay to go and she had no idea whether it was all right or not. So we decided just to go and see what happens. Went along and uh, in somebody's front room, I think there was 16, 17 people. I can see it in my mind's eye and remember how it felt very, very clearly. And the Buddhist who was teaching the meditation, he was Manjuradra. Some of you may know or have heard of Manjuradra. He'd only been ordained himself the year previously. And he had come down to Cornwall and he was teaching at the local grammar school. And one of the yoga teachers was also teaching there, which was how that came about. So, uh, yeah, in the first week, we did the mindfulness of breathing. And the second week, we did the metta bhavna. Um, yeah, despite the fact that I was sitting in really excruciating pain because he hadn't given us a great deal of helpful hints in terms of posture. We didn't have proper cushions or anything like that. So, you know, I was probably sitting on the floor with one cushion and, you know, not at all accustomed to sitting cross-legged as I was at the time. And he was talking about the metabhavna. It was just extraordinary. Something went ping, is all I can say. At that time, it hit some sort of spot. I just knew that what I was hearing 
was important. Not only was it important that it somehow, well, it was the truth. I had this idea, even then, I remember that it was already there, that the matter was already there. And it was more a question of, you know, sort of how to access it. I had beginner's mind very definitely on that occasion and all the pain in my body went. I was in this definitely altered state of consciousness and that lasted actually for probably uh, three weeks or so afterwards when my world felt transformed. It really did feel transformed. I'd been somebody who had had a very well-developed kind of protective bubble that I lived my life through, especially in relation to other people. I suddenly found myself seeing people and just really, I don't know, just wanting to kind of know about them and meet them in a way that I never had before. It was just quite remarkable. And somehow was being given a glimpse of something because it wasn't long before I crashed. Yes, it's taken all these years <laughs> attempting to get back to something. But I feel that what happened then is I was given a glimpse of something. And it's that that's actually called forth the whole path that I've followed. It's been quite extraordinary. Mm. I'm struck really by what you said about, you know, being in almost an altered state for three weeks. And, you know, we often translate the Brahma Viharas as divine abodes or dwelling places and it really does sound from how you're talking about it you were you know in a, mm. in a different sort of world nearly um, I was. or at least seeing things from a different perspective yeah I'm also just curious because I suppose you know the way often when we come along and we learn to meditate particularly for a time we're really engaged with certain practices and then over time we kind of start searching for new ones we want to do something different and the fact that you've been practicing the Brahma Vihara's those many years, you know, I don't know, it seems like a testament to the potential of a practice when you just decide to go deeper with it. And I was wondering, I know it'd be probably quite hard to put this into words, but would it be able to maybe even just share a little bit about the evolution of your practice over the years in terms of what it was like at the beginning and to, to what it looks like practicing these practices now, if possible? <laughs> I'll have a go. I was somebody who did take to meditation quite easily. It felt like I was a natural meditator, at least for a good number of years. That certainly seemed to be the case. There is a bit of a story attached to that. I don't know whether I'll come to it, but certainly in terms of practicing, you know, the metabhavna or the mindfulness of breathing, but in particular the metabhavna, after that amazing kind of glimpse where it felt as though, well, it did really feel in a way as though I, looking back on it, as though I was love in a sense, you know, that it was just in me and you know, everything that I saw and then coming back down to earth with a bang and being back in my usual self, which actually wasn't my usual self at all because I had lost my identity having left London and the music industry, had no idea who I was. And my Metabhavna practice went through all the usual phases. I think a lot of people go through, you know, where I would be overly imaginative with it and kind of, you know, just trying to kind of pump the emotion up, trying to get some sort of feeling going and, you know, having all these ideas about it. And very often finding that, you know, I could sit there in some sort of quite blissed out state while I was actually on the cushion. But then very soon afterwards, it would be obvious that it hadn't permeated very deeply into my being. So it wasn't as though actually the Metabhavna was just an easy practice for me. But there was something about having had that glimpse that made me feel I wanted to take it further. And this experience that 
somehow it was already there and that I needed to get myself out of the way. When I came across the other Brahma Viharas, because I only knew of the Metabhavna for quite a long time. I mean, I was living in Cornwall and the movement as it was then was very, very small. And there were very few order members. There was only Manjavadra in Cornwall at that time. And so it was quite slow, the sort of progression. And I had to go up to London over time to different retreats and things like that to get to know other people and take things further. But then when I heard about the Brahma Viharas, I think from that first beginning, it's as though it made absolute sense then to see the whole range of practice somehow getting there's Metta, there's Karana, there's Mudita, there's Upeka. It just suddenly became something that felt very whole, like a set of practices, that it seemed as though they could kind of really meet the whole range of one's experience. I mean, the more I looked at it, I remember going on my first solitary retreat. I'm somebody who's a real advocate of solitary retreats, and nearly all my solitary retreats have been at least a month long and some quite a bit longer. So I went off on a month-long retreat with the Brahma Vihara practices for the first time. And I remember that feeling very, very strongly of somehow them being able to meet everything in me throughout that whole retreat. Whatever was going on, I could just see that the answer lay within those practices. And it was just so wonderful to find that, you know, something that could really meet you in that way. So exploring them and going on with them, it's just felt like a very natural progression. You know, that stage, they became a sort of set of practices for me at that time, which I could see really sort of strengthened and supported and protected each other, that they really worked together. They weren't separate practices, but I saw them very much from the start as a whole. I love the way they interact with each other and the fact that the whole range from the far enemies, the near enemies and the positive qualities, there isn't anything I don't think that they can't meet and have the answer to. I know I've been struck by when we were looking at the material in preparation for this, you know, you have from the previous retreat you had on this, and I'm sure other retreats too, this idea of the map you know, mm. and situating yourself on the map. And then, mm. you know, if you're, well, as you say, in, in some of the, the near or far enemies, adjusting yourself to come back to being in one of these states, yeah, which is really quite a nice image or a nice mm. way of looking at it. And mm. a very holistic way, isn't it, of, of approaching, mm. approaching yeah. practice. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I've wanted over a long period of time to take practice off the cushion and into my daily life. And as a means of doing that, you know, using them as a map, that's wonderful for kind of keeping you, you know, just as you would if you were going somewhere, you know, wherever you go, you'd have your map to check where you are. You know, using the Brahma Viharas in that way, you've got your internal map. It's just there at your fingertips then ready to help and respond in a way. Yeah, that's great. On that right of Andana, I was thinking you've described very beautifully how the Brahma Viharas can sort of meet anything in your own experience. So I was just wondering if you could perhaps say a little bit about what you think the Brahma Viharas can offer the world at the moment? So both more broadly, sort of what can they offer society, but also specifically, we're in such a specific time right now. And yeah, perhaps people out there are wondering, you know, how can these practices more directly help us and help the world? 
Well, in a way, everything is is the answer, but it's not that easy, is it? Because it's not that easy for people to access them. But, you know, through the, the different Brahma Viharas, there's very much everything that we need at the moment. I've always loved Bhante's insistence, seeing them as insight practices, path to bodhicitta, path to insight. I think they can operate on a very simple, you know, sort of basic level of learning to be kinder or more caring, you know, or to be a bit happier or have a little bit more equanimity. You know, they can operate on quite a simple, straightforward sort of basis, but they can also take you all the way, you know, if that's where you want to go. One of the things that I feel we need very, very particularly at the moment is perspective in terms of what's happening in the world. It's very easy to get overwhelmed by what's happening and there's so much fear and anxiety and so on. And what I love is Karana and Mudita, you know, is an image that I've had for the Brahmaviras is that of a bird as well as the one of a tree. But the body of the bird is metta, which is the fundamental root Brahmavihara. And the wings of the bird are Karana and Mudita. And then the whole bird in flight is Upeka. And obviously, for the bird to fly, those two wings have got to be in some sort of balance. And I think it's just really interesting when you think at these times, with all that is happening and all the fear and the anxiety, there's also so much beauty, so much to rejoice in, so much joy in actual fact. It's just very, very interesting. It's almost as though, and I had a a note from my sister where she was telling me about the walk she goes on with a dog where she sees this tree, which she's become enchanted by the tree. It's just a very, very beautiful silver birch tree. And there's something about it is just really speaking to her at the moment. And she says it's sort of like a mental safety blanket that is protecting her from getting into more difficult mental states with the uh, lockdown and so on. And I think that's the thing. There is something very natural about that balance between Karana and Mudita and how at times that are so difficult, there's always the other side of the coin. It's as though our joy and our sorrow are just two sides of the same coin. And I think the Brahma Baharas really help us to see that and understand that, that that's the nature of things, that's how things are. And of course, that then leads you into Upeka, into equanimity. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. I just wanted to ask you a question, Ratnavandana, because I'm very conscious that you situate these practices in relationship to the five Buddha mandala. And the five Buddha mandala, I suppose just to say in brief, if you haven't heard them, it's bringing in the archetypal Buddhas, you know, the qualities, the aspects, if you like, of enlightenment, drawing out the aspects of enlightenment, such as love, unshakability, fearlessness, clarity, energy. And I was reading something probably a week or two ago where it was just saying that reverence isn't fashionable. However, you know, I get a really strong sense, and myself and Kusa Devi talked about this when we were preparing this material, that in a way it wasn't possible to take out the reverential part. You bring in the mantras to the different Buddhas, very much interlinked in the exploration of the Brahmaviharas. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. And there's also a question from Hillary in Glasgow, and she's just asking about your pairing of the particular jinnas, the Buddhas, with the particular bhavanas. She's wondering if that's a traditional thing that you've picked up on, or is this something that you've come up with yourself? So, so yeah, maybe just a little bit about reverence and then that pairing. Yes, well, reverence. 
probably isn't fashionable. I mean, the way things have evolved, and again, solitary retreat, I remember very clearly I'd gone off on this solitary retreat where I had just got the thousand-armed Avlokiteshvara sadhana and was very, very happily going off on solitary retreat to learn how to do it. And in that particular sadhana, it takes you very much into the realm of the five Buddhas. And so although I had heard of the five Buddha mandala at that time, I, I hadn't particularly connected with it or investigated it. But as a result of this particular practice taking me there, I did. I started to investigate it. And I loved the fact that they were kind of breaking down, in a sense, that enlightenment experience and putting it into terms that were much, much easier to relate to. So through each of the Buddhas has a different aspect of the enlightened experience. So, yeah, I found myself on that solitary retreat. I had the Santra's book with me and I was doing the Brahma Vihara practices as well and looking at the poisons that related to each of the Buddhas and that were the far enemies of each of the Brahma Viharas and uh, just saw a very strong connection and yeah, just thought how wonderful it was to be able to see that particular poison in its transformed form, you know, with Akshobhya turning hatred into love. And I just got very inspired by the idea that the two mandalas could go together. I don't know whether it might be a traditional teaching. I'm sure it is somewhere, but I came to it in this particular way. I mean, I think the Brahma Viharas are not easy practices. I certainly haven't felt them easy practices. They're challenging. And they're challenging partly because really they very much highlight all the areas that I'm lacking, all the ways in which I'm not actually living up to what I would like to be living up to in terms of what they offer. So there was something about having that five Buddha mandala there that felt much, much easier to be able to just hold all of that, knowing it sort of made sense that one could transform and become a true bronze or quality much more real for me. So it yeah, worked very much in that way and developed from there. It seems quite important, doesn't it, to have a vision of what we can become. Yeah. And and also, I suppose, there's something for me around the five Buddha mandala. It's like bringing in different aspects of ourselves, maybe the more imaginative dimension. And yes, that more reverential dimension, even if it isn't particularly fashionable at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, it felt very much on that retreat. That was when I first started really having the feeling of wanting to try and live in the mandala. And living in the mandala meant living in the presence of those Buddhas in whatever whatever I was doing. And, you know, that sense of reverence just, well, for me then, if I am really living in the mandala, it's just a very natural outflow of natural expression I just want to take some questions people have been asking. I think maybe Kusta Devi, do you have anyone you want to jump in with? Yeah, well, I was just thinking about Nathandana, you mentioned there in terms of the Buddha's, the far enemy and the poisons, those poisons of the Buddha's. So there's a question here from Shraddhaba, which is, can you say a bit more about the near and far enemies in each Brahma Vihara in relation to our situation today and what to watch out for, please? 
Mm. Well, I mean, I think with Karanar, it's very, very obvious, isn't it? The near enemies of Karanar, horrified anxiety. I should imagine it's a very easy time, isn't it, to fall into horrified anxiety. And the other, there's two near enemies for Karanar, which the other is sentimental pity. So if we're not able to actually connect ourselves and get into that sentimental pity very easily, where we're not really addressing the situation at all, but just they're there trying to smooth it over. It's also very easy, I think, to get into the far enemy, certainly of Meta and probably Karanar as well at this time, because there's a lot of anger. Well, a lot of emotion is getting stirred. I mean, there's a lot of fear. I think fear probably underlies so much of it. It's very difficult to speak for other people. I can only really speak for myself. And, you know, if I find myself getting caught up in any of those, the first thing that I do is just try and stop. And it, it's almost like taking that proverbial step back and seeing what's happening, just sitting with the experience of whatever it is and recognizing where it is on the Brahma Vihara map. And I do find that just the act of doing that brings about a change, brings about a shift. But I realize that's not necessarily how it would be for everyone. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And actually, I think you've touched on a couple of other answers to some other questions there. There was a question around where fear and blame fit into the mandala. So it sounds like you're saying, you know, in terms of those far enemies, like what we might be experiencing right now is sort of anger, perhaps, or blaming others. And actually, as you said, what's underlying that may well be fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then another question, I think, you know, how can one work at a practical level when you notice that you're stepping into blaming others or stepping into one of the enemies and Again, I think you just addressed that beautifully there by the first thing is just to stop and notice where you are in that mandala. Yeah, just come back. I come into my body, go down to my feet. I like to get my take my awareness down to my feet, come into my body. And, you know, it's just that stopping and taking a step back, being prepared then to sit with whatever it is that's going on and investigate it a little bit, just sort of see. It's usually quite easy to just see that I'm getting caught up in something and it's escalating and I'm just wanting to give vent to something or blame someone or you know because it's difficult isn't it it is difficult it's very very difficult but doing that creates the gap and allows for a different response so allows you to start to slowly see that there can be another response yeah, it strikes me that the Brahma Viharas are very essentially creative practices, aren't they? Just you're constantly having to adjust yourself on that map and move mm-hmm. yeah. in between different states. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to come back probably to this area of reverence because you have another question here from Claire. And she's saying, in one of your talks, you spoke of making everything you do an offering. And she's just wondering if you could elaborate a bit more around the intention behind this. Yeah, I was going to be doing a six-month solitary and that six months was an opportunity. I was just really, really concerned to try to raise everything in my life, all the mundane activities of my life into the sacred. I want to bring everything into the sacred. And I thought a way to do it on the six-month solitary would be to see my life as an offering or to make everything a prayer. 
so that's that's what I set out to do on this particular solitary. It was remarkable the effect that it had. I mean, to start off with, it was clunky and quite odd doing all these mundane things, you know, having a pee, having a shower and all that kind of thing. And I was trying to do it. I was making the offerings essentially to Avrokiteshra, who was my idam. Yes, I wanted to live in his presence. I wanted him, in a sense, to be my witness and to live a life of service, of surrender to his will, in a way, just to be a channel, you know, through which his energy could manifest in the world. So, you know, that was very much the sort of intention behind it. And it was just extraordinary how it just took on a life of its own, you know, after a very clunky beginning, wherever, because I spoke out loud, my offerings out loud as I was doing it. And, uh, you know, going from feeling really embarrassed and kind of it toe-curlingly, it was just lovely that words just came and just arose, words of offering of devotion that just made absolute sense. What was so lovely about it is that it really brought all my activities, it sort of felt like attending to life is an act of love. And everything that I did could be included in that. And I, for such a long time, had felt this sort of divide between ordinary life and practice and just really, really wanted that to disappear, to just feel that life is practice and that's it. I wanted that kind of dedication, that sort of sense that I was really living yeah, a life with conscious intention. And that was the way that I set about doing it. I think that's really interesting because probably for a lot of us at the beginning, we have this experience of we might have really positive mental states when we're meditating or when we go on a retreat, perhaps. And then there's the everyday life and we go back to whatever it is we normally do. Mm. Um, And I mean, I certainly have thought about that myself. How do you make your whole life your practice rather than feeling it's something you do in the evenings or just for an hour in the morning or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really beautiful. I, I was struck by when you said about offering everything to this Buddha figure, Avalokiteshvara. Yeah, I was just struck by how in a sense you were talking about it in terms of surrender, but how it also sounded like connection, you know, that you were always connected with someone, with some being which also seems to me the very essence of the fifth stage of the Metabhavna practice, you know, mm-hmm. the way you're imaginatively connecting with with everyone, mm-hmm. every being there is. So mm-hmm. it's such a, a really beautiful way to approach life, isn't it? A life of connection. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I had another question just in relation to, I was very struck by when I'm listening to your talks and even when you're talking here now, how much you mention nature. And on the Buddhist Centre Online, we've been marking Earth Week all week, celebrating it. We had a couple of podcasts around bringing out Earth Week and themes around that. I know that you've spoken about the Brahma Viharas as a tree and you were speaking about it earlier as a bird as well. And you know, there's references to meta being like the sun and it just seems very full of images from nature. And I guess just thought it'd be interesting to hear a bit about your thoughts on our relationship with nature and what can we learn and maybe even the connection with the Brahma Viharas again. Well, I mean, we are part of nature, aren't we? I mean, we're the elements, uh, you know, just as the external elements, we have them all within. There's that aspect, you know, which is a very, very strong connection. I've done the six element practice quite a lot and feel very strongly those elements within. I'm made of the same material, the same clay, as it were, and air and 
the water and so on, all the different elements. So there's that side of it. But there's also the fact that there's so much we get reflected back to us from nature, don't we? In the same way that you're talking about with the five Buddhas, that, you know, they can show us what something looks like. But nature does that so often as well. I find I'm forever kind of seeing something reflected. It speaks to me and, you know, tells me something. I live here by a river. And this river, it's just been extraordinary. It's become a teacher. You know, there's just no question in my mind, but it's one of my teachers. I learn so much from walking beside it every day. Hardly a day will go by that something won't come to mind as I'm walking alongside it, you know, just because of what's reflected through my connection with it. It's that sort of feeling that if we're open to it, to the different energies in things, I mean, there's so many ways Using the sun as an image, you know, for our hearts, that to me is, it really gives me something. If I think of my heart as being clouded over, I mean, I very strongly believe that the sun of my heart is always there shining away, but it gets clouded by me getting in the way of it and how I am and being able to relate to it in that way. I don't know, it just really helps. I very often start when I'm just tuning into myself, thinking about, you know, what my emotional weather is relating to it in that way. And I feel that very, very strong connection to the earth that holds everything and connecting with that in terms of we're all containers and the container that can hold everything that happens to us. It's, yeah, I feel there's just so many ways that it supports and nourishes and provides us with so much beauty. Mm. yeah thanks that's yeah just very evocative and beautiful and helpful there's a couple more questions which are around how to actually put these practices into action and I think they perhaps link together so one is around is there a tendency to accept rather than challenge or question unskillful action with these practices so just a sense of our acceptance of how things are rather than a, a questioning of unskillfulness and then the other question is around is it possible to become too pumped up and too willful and how do you get a more relaxed and balanced approach so perhaps you could say something about that how you how you yourself have come to a more balanced approach of practicing the body of the heart hmm. I mean that part of the question I think there's a tendency, or I certainly had a tendency to try and do the practices too much. There was too much doing in my attempts with the practices, which I think you know is quite natural in a way, the way that they are set up and the way that we're taught. I work much, much more on needing to really sit with myself, really sort of sifting through what's going on in that first stage of all of the practices. You know, it's just so important, you know, to be connected with yourself before you go anywhere else. It needs to happen in a very kind of, you know, open, spacious way that it's just a bit like you sit in a wood and everything kind of goes very quiet. And then you sit there for a while and after a while, all these little creatures start coming out and you start discovering all these different things that are going on. So it's a bit like that with yourself, you know, just giving yourself the opportunity to really discover <laughs> what's going on. And then I find that that just leads me into the practice in a way that avoids the pitfalls and you know I do often tend to come back if I'm doing a stage practice in the normal way I come back 
between stages just to kind of check in to make sure that I'm not yeah just getting too driven again by kind of moving forward with the practice because it changes so much with each of the different people in the different stages and really allowing yourself to respond to the connection with that person it's really interesting just to spend a bit of time sitting with your friend just feeling what arises in relation to that taking it slowly and just really letting practice kind of gain its own momentum I think is important the other bit of the question was what about can you remind me what that was the first bit I can yeah so that was is there a danger of using the practice to support a tendency to accept rather than challenge or question unskillful action to accept right right that's interesting Ah. I mean I find very very strongly that they highlight my unskillfulness Mm. and in the light of their purity as it were that shows up very strongly I certainly don't feel it would be in any kind of way that you know made me think that was okay much more that I would be inclined to feel challenged by it I feel very drawn to the beauty and purity of the Brahma Viharas and I've never found although there's a constant reflection back looking in the mirror of the Brahma Viharas of, of where I lack it's never made me disheartened in any kind of way just because I think the draw of them is so much stronger, the beauty of what they offer. And what I suppose I also truly believe is our natural heart's response. Mm. So I wouldn't see them as that kind of acceptance of unskillful states, no. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like, again, you're drawing out what you're moving towards. So Mm. when you're saying the Buddha's sort of moving towards particular qualities or aspiring to sort of grow Mm -hmm. whilst accepting where we're at. Yeah, or being in connection with where we're at. Yeah. Well, I'm just conscious we're coming up, probably just have a time for just a few more questions. And there's one here from Michelle from Bristol. And she's asking, she's saying she works in a ward in a hospital as a nurse. And there's so much suffering and fear and chaos. When being in that space and bringing meta and turning into compassion, but how do you cope with that trauma after coming away from that that experience? Mm, mm, mm. You need compassion yourself, don't you? You know, that's the first thing that I think you need to really hold yourself, you know, putting yourself in that situation. When you come away from it, you need to, in a way, wrap your own arms around yourself and really be prepared to uh, recognise, you know, what you've just put yourself in and through and what is actually going on and, yeah, how much you need that for yourself at that time. Whatever out of that sense of being able to really acknowledge and recognize, just trying to really see what you do need, what will be helpful to you to restore you and prepare you to go back again the next day so that you can have responded to yourself and given yourself what you do need in order to be able to maintain that level of courage and yeah, compassion going into that. Yeah, I'm just remembering something we talked about when we were chatting on Friday. At the beginning, when we think about these practices, we can think about them in a very sort of each stage, sort of stage for me, stage for the the good friend, stage for the neutral person. And, you know, that can sometimes feel a little bit maybe even clunky, but actually over time, 
I suppose it's kind of been a bit more organic with our practice where it, it's just a kind of a flow of responding to what's actually arising more. I mean, I know you were talking about that being your experience and particularly in terms of all the Brahma Baharas that you just naturally bring people to mind and, and flow between it. Could you say a little bit more about that? I suppose it just in relation to that idea of where compassion for oneself fits in and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously, if one were to, being somebody who's invested a lot of time and energy into the Brahma Maharas, obviously, I don't have time to do all four practices on a daily basis. So over time, yes, I've evolved a particular way, which is just very much sitting in open space. I think of it sitting in the blue sky, having tuned into myself very much in the way that I was talking about earlier, having really created that space for me to really meet myself where I am at this particular moment and sensing what the tendencies are, what's actually going on, what my kind of emotional weather is at the time and so on. And then I let people come. I then just sit in open space and let people come and I just sit with them. I mean, sometimes it's almost like imagining, you know, we're sitting by the river, just watching the river flow. You know, we're just Mm. sitting together. And out of that, it just becomes apparent that this is a Karanar practice with this particular person. That's what will emerge if that's the case. And so it very much focuses on the Karanar aspect. And it might be that each of the people who come, it might all be a Karanar practice, but very often it is just different. Sometimes it's a mudita, you know, the next person might be a mudita person, or it might be equanimity, or it might just be metta, it might stay with metta. But I love the sense of just really feeling your way, allowing, in a sense, out of the connection, just letting the connection gradually, it feels like what separates us just dissolves that bit more. And we just connect more strongly and then it's very obvious which Brahma Vihara would be good to focus on. But it all happens in quite an organic, (laughs) organic sort of way. Yeah, very natural. Again, Mm. I suppose just again struck by the images you're using about the blue sky and and the river. We're coming towards the end now. There is one more question we've not managed to get through, but I think actually it, it was around the mudita bhavna and is it possible to take joy in other people's happiness, even if that appears to be derived through unskillful action? So, for example, a difficult person who might have acted in a way that's hurt us, is it possible to feel mudita for that because they were doing it to make themselves happy? So perhaps just a quick one for that. If, well, <laughs> is it possible to answer that quickly? Yeah. Possibly not, but... <laughs> Not a a quick answer. No. It's not a quick answer. I mean, obviously, one wouldn't take joy in anything that is seriously unskillfully derived if it's arrived at through unskillfulness. Mudita can't arise under those circumstances. Mm. So I think that's quite clear. But it's a different thing if there's something that goes on between you and somebody and there has been perhaps some skillfulness in that. But then, you know, say, for example, they get invited to be ordained, which there's no unskillful basis to that. You could have joy in that, obviously, even if your own connection with them well, might have that less skillful element. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Great. Well, you managed it. Well done. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So there's a couple of really lovely comments from people right in the band, which you might not have been able to see, but just people really yeah. thanking you, mm. thanking you for your depth, your warmth, your sharing. Yeah. yeah. So lots of lovely comments from people all over some who have met you on retreats and been on mm. with you and felt the effect of that. You know, someone said 10 years on, they can still feel the effects of that mm. in, a, in a mysterious way. So, yeah, really beautiful. Yeah. 
That's lovely. So, yeah, just say a few closing comments. Many of you will know that there's a home retreat that's happening at the moment, which is Being Divine Online. And there's much more of Ratnavandana's teaching there. So she's very generously shared these teachings with us that you can access each day. So um, if you visit the buddhistcenter.com forward slash love, you'll see the homepage there for the home retreat. There's online meditations twice a day, Monday to Friday, where we invite you to join us for those. And also Ratnavandana will be recording a podcast around the Brahma Viharas. So again, there'll be more that Ratnavandana will be sharing sort of live around her more recent inspirations on this theme. Sadaya Sihi and I are also blogging on the community toolkit. So that's a bit more of an interactive space. So if you'd like to join us and let us know how you're finding the retreat, we'd really love to hear from you there. We'd love to hear your reflections, your comments, your questions. And yeah, if you have any questions there for Ratnavandana, you know, we'd be able to share them with her. So yeah, please do join us on that community toolkit page as well. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been wonderful to have you here. Yeah. It's been a pleasure indeed. It really has. Yeah. 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 It's great.